You can turn once again in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. We're going nice and slow through this, but there's a, a lot of good in here for us to mine out. So we're looking at verses 17 and 18 tonight of James chapter 1. The title of the sermon is The Greatest Gift. Uh, this is coming after a discussion, as we looked at last time, that God is not the one who tempts us to sin. God is not the author of sin, but it's our own evil desires that draw us to sin, and that the result of sin is death, and so we don't want to be deceived in thinking that we can sin and not experience some form of death due to it. So, in contrast, let's look at James 1, 17 to 18. This is God's word. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, to the hearing, to the sharing of his word. We're thinking about gifts tonight and the givers of gifts. And I want you to just think for a moment is, uh, think about maybe the best gift you've ever received. Okay, you might have to think a little ways back or a long ways back, but what was the best gift you've ever received? It might not have been the most expensive gift, but the best gift. And what did that gift mean to you? Uh, for me, it was probably, I was about 10 or 11 years old, and at that time, you know, I loved superheroes. Makes sense. You know, every time we went to Blockbuster, back in the days where you rented movies from Blockbuster, it was a Batman cartoon, a Spider-Man cartoon, Superman, whatever. And uh, my, my dad for Christmas, he had gone to all this work and he got me this very special comic series called The Secret Wars. And he had read it back when he was in college in the 70s and you couldn't find this series. It was out of print. He said it was the best ever. And somehow in the late 90s, he found his way onto eBay and being not very technologically savvy, my dad found some way to obtain this copy of Secret Wars, and he gave it to me, and it was the most special gift ever, because I knew my dad had just thought and worked hard and got me just the best gift of what I could have wanted. And we know that gifts, they communicate something of the giver, right? A good gift takes thoughtfulness and a care and consideration, and really, gifts can communicate love. You might be familiar with those concepts of the love languages, that there's different ways that we can communicate love to one another, whether with our words or our deeds. Um, but one of the ways is by the giving of gifts. You see, the gift communicates something about the giver. And what I want us to consider tonight, and I want to ask, do you know that God is the greatest gift giver? God gives the best gifts. And I want us to consider this tonight, God's greatest gift, that we might be led to reflect on the goodness of God the giver. Not much is going to be new here, but it is good to be stirred up, Peter says, by way of reminder. We need to be reminded to look once again at the greatest gift of God, that our hearts might be filled with his goodness and grace. So let's turn to our text. Take a look at verse 17. James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, we're looking at the greatest giver who is God himself. And James is saying here that so far away from being a tempter towards sin, or a God who would do us evil, God is the giver of all good gifts and all perfect gifts. That is, 
everything good you might enjoy in this life, everything that feels just right and perfect and satisfyingly good, the source of all those good gifts is God himself. God is goodness itself. God is the source of all goodness. And so all good that you have ever experienced or will experience is the good gift of God. Just as a, a large water source might have many different rivers coming out of it, so the many good things we experience in this life all have their source in the great depth, the well that is God, goodness itself. And so, as God's people, we need to be utterly secure and confident in the fact that God is good, in the goodness of God's character. Because to admit any evil in God is to, in a sense, de-God God, to take him off his throne, to make him less than infinite perfection. And so what does this mean for us? Right off the bat, this means that we ought to be looking to God for all our expectation of good. Right? Don't you want good things to happen in your future? We all want to experience goodness in our life. And we don't want to seek it, first of all, in the things of this world. We want to be seeking God for goodness. Seeking him for all our hope of good in this life and good in the next life. But furthermore, this fact that God is good means that we need to be people who thank God for all the good we experience. Maybe you had a good lunch today, a good time with family, a good conversation, Whatever it may be, God deserves all thanksgiving for that. But more than being simply good, this text reminds us that God is unchangeably good. He never ceases to be good. And James here, he does a contrast of God with uh, the heavenly lights, with the sun and the moon in particular. So take a look again at the text. He says that with God, there is no variation that's a word that's actually used for, for the orbiting of celestial bodies or their rotation. Um, it's, a, it's a variance, a changing, or shadow due to change. And the word for uh, change or turning there, it's also an, an astronomical term. And so in here we see that James is contrasting God with the sun and the moon, right? It's the movement of the sun that changes shadows. Right, boys and girls, have you ever stood behind the light and you maybe have a really funny shadow on the beach and you move and there it is? But it might get longer, it might get shorter. Um, sometimes the sun seems gone altogether, right? Because the sun is variable. At times like this, it's warmer in the year. At other times, we don't feel the warmth of the sun, right? And, you know, when I first moved to Michigan, uh, one of the things everyone told me, they're like, hey, if you don't like the weather in Michigan, wait five minutes, right? That, that's the adage. Because... The sun's untrustworthy here. The moon is untrustworthy. The tides change. They're always varying, rotating, moving, but not so with God. He's not changeable in this way. He's actually called the father of lights. That is, he's the father of these great lights in the sky, the light of the sun, the light of the moon. God is the creator of them. And unlike that sun and moon, God does not rotate or change his mind or change his character especially. His covenant will never be broken. There's no variation or shadow due to, to change in God. And so again, this means that God is utterly trustworthy. Utterly trustworthy now and forever. So again, we must make this a settled conviction in our souls that God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good. God is good. Probably the most 
used and common refrain in the book of Psalms is this, to give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. God's love, his faithfulness are expressions of his goodness. God is good and his faithful love endures forever. And so all good gifts come from God. Many of these good gifts are even experienced by unbelievers. God in his common goodness allows many to experience laughter and joy and love and various delights. But when James wants to give this congregation an example of the goodness of the giver, an example of the best gift they could have received, this is what he says. Look at verse 18. James writes, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We turn from the greatest giver to look here in verse 18 at the greatest gift. And uh, here's a quick uh, little seminary lesson. So in New Testament classes at the seminary I went to, we were taught to ask four simple questions of every text we read. So if you memorize these questions, you can be a seminarian as well. And they actually apply super well to this text. You know, things like you learn rubrics and they don't always fit, but here they fit perfectly. And the questions were simply to ask of the text, what is being talked about? Why? How is it happening? And then lastly, wherefore? Or to what end is this happening? So let's use each of these four questions to look at this gift, to inspect this gift from every angle, right? You know when you first open the wrapping paper on a present, um, you look at it, it's like, oh, look at that part. And you, you look at the instructions on the back, you're like, oh, wow, this does this or that. You inspect it. And we want to look at this gift together. So first, let's consider the what. What is this gift? Okay, look again at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Okay, that is the what. God brought us forth. This is literally the word in here, God birthed us, or he begat us. Okay, this is the same word that James just used two verses earlier to say, um, sin, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. Okay, God birthed us. Uh, That's an interesting gift. That might remind you, and it should, of what we call being born again, or the new birth. Right? You remember Nicodemus we heard in John 3 a while back? He went to Jesus, and Jesus told him that you must be born again. And Nicodemus was all confused. He's like, I can't go again into my mother's womb and be born. And Jesus said, no, it's a being born of the Spirit. Being born again. Now, what is this gift of the new birth, the gift of being born again? Well, we can think of it in a number of different angles, but I want us to think about this theologically, this idea of God birthing us. I think we can look at it from three different perspectives. That is, we'll look at this in a Trinitarian perspective. What is the particular gift here of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And so, this gift includes being redeemed by the Son. That is, being given a new freedom. The greatest example of this was Israel in Egypt, enslaved, captured, but then the waters part and they're delivered through to freedom. Part of this gift of this new birth is a removal from our land and dominion of slavery to find a new freedom as a child of God. It means being redeemed by the Son, but also regenerated by the Spirit. That is to say, being made alive again, or being renewed by the Holy Spirit. That is, given a new character and a new heart. 
right? We, we know it's possible physically that you could have a heart where there's arteries so clogged, so damaged, that if that heart was to remain, it would be certain unchangeable death. And what is needed in such a drastic time but a heart transplant, a totally unworking heart for a new heart. But even more than that, the Holy Spirit, when one puts faith in Christ, takes out a dead heart and brings in a new and living heart. We call that regeneration by the Spirit, a new character. But thirdly, it means the adoption of the Father. The great gift of being born into God's new family, being adopted to be one of his sons and daughters. What a gift that is, to have a new identity, right? If you were to be adopted, what you would get is you would get a new name, right? Your last name, or what is sometimes called your family name, meaning this is your new identity. And so this gift of being born into God's family means we're redeemed from where we were. We're changed that we're not who we used to be, and we're given a new belonging, a new family, the family of God. Paul, Paul considers all three of these aspects in a wonderful text in Galatians 4. I want us to see how uh, he brings together all these three threads in Galatians 4, 4 to 7. He says, When the fullness of time had come, come God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All these three aspects— redemption in Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, adoption by the Father, we comprehend it all under the term salvation. That is the greatest gift to which James refers, the gift of salvation, of being born again. This is the greatest gift, salvation in Jesus. And if this is the greatest gift, we, we must ask secondly, why would God bestow this gift upon such like you and me? Why would God send Christ? Why would he offer this gift of salvation to a sinful world? Well, it's a very important question because uh, it's damaging to answer this incorrectly, right? Because if, if, if you believe, um, or let's think of it this way. If you were to answer the question, why did you believe the gospel? And why did you come into an estate of salvation? Was it because you were smarter than other people and you figured it out? Was it because you were perhaps more spiritually sensitive than others and just you had that inclination? Was it because you were raised in the right kind of family? Or was it because you had um, lived the right kind of life, a righteous, good life? You see, the issue here is that if it's anything to do with you, you have reason to boast. But here's the reality. Um, God didn't see any worthiness in you to see you deserving of such a great gift. No, God tells Israel in Ezekiel 16, he says, I found you uh, like a useless baby lost in mud and stuck in your own blood, and I delivered you out. He tells them again in Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't love you and set my love on you because you were the greatest of all peoples or the most noble of all peoples. He said, I loved you because I've loved you. You see, apart from God's mercy, we'd all be helpless. There's no loveliness or glory in us that would um, call God to us. 
God doesn't save the best and the brightest. It's most often the exact opposite. Uh, If you've ever had to sit through a time where people are picking sports teams, maybe in PE in high school, and you have your captains, and they're picking teams. How do they pick teams? I I occasionally play soccer, and there's the two captains, and you know who they're going to pick. They pick the best player, the fastest player, and you know, maybe it's differentiated by position, right? So they first pick maybe the best striker, then the best goalkeeper, the best defender, but they're picking based on these skills. That's not how God brings salvation to people. When God is electing or choosing to bestow this gift of grace, it's the exact opposite. Hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Okay, that is, consider how did God call you to faith? What were the circumstances by which God called you? He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Anyone who finds themselves in a state of grace in the last day will have nothing to boast in themselves, but they will have to give all glory to the God who saved them, the Lord who bought them, the Spirit who regenerated them. And really, do you know that that's the heart of Reformed theology? The heart of Reformed theology is that God gets all the glory. As was the old refrain, sole deo gloria, glory to God alone. In our salvation, we get zero credit. God gets all the glory. And that's worth rejoicing in. This is a doctrine we call unconditional election. That is that God chose to save a people not because those people had met the right conditions, but merely, this text says, of his own will, not due to our merits or our clean lives, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And that's why Romans 9 says that salvation is not of the one who wills or the one who runs, but God who has mercy. And God is a God full of mercy. We sang earlier, he has mercy for the meek for those who humble themselves under his mighty hand, saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross of Christ I cling. And this is a great comfort. Some people think this a hard doctrine or a difficult doctrine, but do you know what's the beauty of this doctrine? The beauty of this doctrine is that God didn't save you because he had to or was obligated to, as in you had fulfilled the requirement, so he has to pass you to the next grade. God didn't need to save you because you had met the requirements and he was under some justice. No, it means that God saved you because he wanted to. God saved you because he desired your fellowship for all eternity. God desired your friendship, your place in his family forever and ever. That is a mind-boggling truth. That is something to delight in. That is quite the gift. Now, if this gift is indeed so great, and it's given according to God's will, we want to know how does God bring this about? How does this new birth come to people? How does this salvation come to sinners? Well, again, 
James writes, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. That is the means or the instrument God uses to bring about the new birth. Now, when we're thinking of a a cause or a means, we usually think of it in two ways. You can think of the power and then the instrument. So if you were to ask, um, how did that nail get embedded into that piece of wood? You could either say, well, it was a hammer, or you could say it was the hammer swinger, uh, the the worker of the hammer, if you will. Or if you were to ask, um, what made the, the lovely music that we heard tonight? Well, you might say, oh, it was the piano. Or you might say it was the piano player. Okay, two different types of causality. And we've already seen that it is the Holy Spirit who is the instrument of regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts. But the Holy Spirit uses a particular instrument. He uses a particular tool, just like a human might use the instrument of a piano or the tool of a hammer. And the means that God has chosen to bestow this grace on people, the instrument of grace, it is what we call in our tradition a means of grace. It is the word of truth. The simple word of truth is the means God uses to bring about salvation. And the word of truth is nothing less than the gospel message itself. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 1.13. He says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is, the word of truth is the gospel of salvation, the good news of God saving sinners in Jesus Christ. This is the tool God uses to bring about supernatural transformation. This very natural, very ordinary means of communication. Words spoken and heard. Words written and words read. Remember what we said earlier, God's voice, it spoke the world into existence. Psalm 29 talks about how God's voice breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord is powerful. And the voice of the Lord is heard in his word. It's heard in the preaching of his word. And as the voice of the Lord brought life into this world, so the voice of the Lord, through the gospel message, brings new life to men and women, to boys and to girls. And this is the truth we need. As John says, it's the truth that sets us free. And the truth of Jesus, and God reconciling all things to himself in Jesus, is the truth that this world needs. And so here's the reminder for us. It's to never underestimate, never undervalue the power of the gospel message. Paul said that the word of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The message of the gospel is the power of God. And so don't also take it for granted that it has come to you. You could have been left having never heard, having never read. And the fact that this message of Jesus that started off in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, it's crossed land and ocean, generation to generation, and it's come to such as us. Thank God that you have been a recipient of the gospel message. It's a tremendous privilege. But thirdly, there's a call for us here to not neglect this message. In Hebrews, he writes, Today is the day of salvation, and because it's today, don't harden your hearts. And you may be here and you've heard the gospel message. 
Maybe you've heard it once. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times, but you are not yet receiving it and believing it and giving yourself over to the truth of Jesus. Then today is the day of salvation because you are accountable for having heard the message of Christ. So don't harden your hearts, but welcome the work of the Holy Spirit that you might lay down your life to serve the Lord, to trust in Christ. God saves by the word of truth. But we must ask also, wherefore does God save? That is, to what end does God save us? Um, the, the why on the, on the far side is that it was of his own will, but going out the other way, to what end did God save us? Right? This is a really important question I fear we often neglect. And if you were um, to, say, adopt a child, you don't just adopt that child just to have them adopted. You have an intention for their life, to see them grow and mature, to be raised to flourish. Right? Or if you were to buy something, um, uh, if you know me, you know that I really like playing and buying board games. And I don't just buy a board game to have it sit on the shelf. No, I have an intention for it. I might think, th this, is, this would be a perfect uh, six-player game that I could maybe play with my nieces and nephews, and so that's, that'll be its use. Or maybe this is a good, heavy, uh, two-player game I could enjoy with my wife. But there's an intention in the, in the purchase for a particular use. And God doesn't just save his people just um, to, to, to zoop our souls off to heaven. God has an intention for us. And this is the wherefore that James says, that he brought us forth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That might sound an odd phrase to us that aren't familiar with the Old Testament. You need to know your Old Testament to know what James is talking about here. He says he's brought us forth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what, what are these first fruits? Okay, well, the first fruits, it's the first part of the harvest, right? If you have an apple tree in your backyard, the first apples that appear, or if you have a blueberry bush, the first blueberries, those are the first of the fruits. And this largely applied in Israel to their main commodities of grain and barley and rye, um, of, of oil and wine. And there was a very special thing about the first fruits, now, you see, because God promised, he promised to bless Israel's harvests if they followed him. And as a reminder to them that he was the one who was blessing them, giving them rains, giving them sun, giving them fruitful seasons, a reminder to them would be that they would return as an offering to God these first fruits, the first batch. It, they would give it back to God, say, God, this is from you, and I give it back to you. That's what they're told um, in Exodus 23, 19. Israel's commanded, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. So that is to say that these first fruits were special in that they were set apart unto God. That is, they were dedicated to God. They were set apart as holy. The first fruits were in this sense holy. And the church is the first fruits of God's creatures, James says. That is, of all the peoples on the face of this world, all the men and women and boys and girls, the church is a people whom God has saved and are therefore a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a people of God's own possession. That is, a holy people set apart to live unto God. So this means that the wherefore, is that God's people, therefore, have a duty to holiness. That's the calling, to be a holy people. Listen to the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter 1.14. He says, 
as obedient children, that is, as those adopted sons and daughters of God, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That means part of this holiness is putting off the deeds of the flesh, not running in the same way people in the world do. Put it off. But, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This call to holiness is nothing less than the call to the family likeness, to look like our holy father. He says, be holy, for I am holy. And so we want to grow up into this mature holiness where we put off the deeds of the flesh, put on righteousness, love, and all goodness to be like our Father in heaven. And so don't forget that God has a purpose for you in the Christian life. Again, it's not just to lift your soul out of this world, but to make you a part of his holy people who represent and reflect God in this world, who live loving God and loving neighbor, glorifying God in it. And that is a high calling. That's an exciting life. And so we, once again, we consider altogether what is this marvelous gift of salvation that God has given us? Well, in summary, it's that apart from any worthiness in us and in light of our sin, God chose to set his love upon us of his own will. And he was under no obligation to do so. And so he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem and rescue us from sin, to provide for our forgiveness. And more than that, he sent the news about Jesus, this news of the gospel, to such as us. And even more than allowing us to hear the message, the Spirit alighted upon the message to give us hearts to believe it, to give us eyes to see it, and to transform us. And so we then find ourselves to be born again, born into the very family of God Almighty, and given a new purpose and a new calling to live as God's holy people, representing and reflecting him in this world, following after his purity and fellowship, and awaiting our everlasting inheritance of eternal joy. What a gift. What a good, good gift. And what a good, good giver of all gifts. And so here's the simple call for you and I this evening. It's first off, to never lose the wonder of the gift of the new birth. Never lose the wonder of the gift of salvation. And then secondly, never lose the wonder of the goodness of the giver. Never lose the wonder of the goodness of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. I think of, in closing, John's words in 1 John 3, 1, he he calls us, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord God. You have done what we could not. You have paid for our sins and our debts in Jesus You've made us to be born again by your Spirit, to come to have all the blessings of salvation, a new identity, a new nature, a new freedom, a new calling. Lord, would we ever cherish the gift of salvation. If there is any here who has not yet accepted by faith the gift of Jesus, would they do so and reach out to him and call upon his name even tonight, knowing that as your word says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.
do a work by your spirit. For those of us that have trusted in Christ, help us never lose the wonder of the cross. Help us never lose the wonder of how good you've been to us, how merciful you've been to us in Christ. And would it be a firm, settled conviction of our souls that you are good and that you deserve all the glory? Would our refrain all our days and ever more would be to give thanks to you for you are good because your steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.